0: Welcome to the Otherwise Podcast, Season 3. I'm your host, Casey Tigrett. I'm an author, pastor, and spiritual director. I recently read an article in Rolling Stone in talking about the end of America. And that's a hard thing to hear, uh, not only as a person who lives in this country, but also um, in the middle of one of the most tumultuous times that many of us have ever seen not the most tumultuous time in history, but definitely in my lifetime. The amount of attention that's finally, finally being paid to racial injustice, the navigation of leadership and how do we deal with coronavirus and how do we consider our public health, the political mudslinging that has always been there but seems to have reached a fever pitch. And there's so many things that suggest that the American dream might be in trouble. Well, today our guest, D.L. Danielle Mayfield, she suggests in her new book, The Myth of the American Dream, that maybe that dream wasn't all that we thought it was. She talks as a person of faith, as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, about what wisdom looks like when we begin to look at the four big pieces of the American dream, affluence, autonomy, safety, and power. In our conversation, she is going to be very raw and very present. She lives in Portland, Oregon, and right now uh, things in Portland are incredibly difficult. And there's a lot of social unrest, and she's bringing that with her into the conversation. We'll talk a bit about that. We'll talk about how we as followers of Jesus love our neighbors well and make the choice to love them well. And we'll also talk about what it means to be a person of faith in the midst of navigating the American dream. I'm really excited for you to hear this conversation with my friend, D.L. Danielle Mayfield. Danielle, it is um, it's wonderful to have you. I've been looking forward to this conversation for quite some time, so thanks for taking time to be on today.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me.
0: You, uh, you're, you live in Portland right now, still, correct? Mm-hmm. How are things on the Pacific Northwest right now? <laughs> how, are, how are you sitting? you, you, you know the, the way the news has gone, the way the world is right now, um, we talked a little before we started about how you how you're coming into today and there's there's a lot of weight right now, it feels like for all of us, mm-hmm. you know, my wife and I last night was our 20th wedding anniversary and we had we had planned to go uh, downtown Chicago. Uh, for dinner. And we reconsidered those plans just because of all the things that are happening in the city right now from closings due to COVID to, um, you know, there's some riding that's going on on the South side and it's moving through the city. And uh, so this is a heavy time. So how do you, how are you coming into this conversation today?
1: Yeah. Portland is a really interesting place to be in right now. We are, you know, making national news and even global news in the past few weeks due to the protests going on in Portland and just the sustained level of both local police and federal uh, police violence against, you know, the majority of nonviolent protesters, including, you know, middle-aged moms and veterans and all this stuff, right? Uh, And so it, it has been really interesting to live in Portland. I am someone who's, I really advocate for people to be obsessed with where they live in their city and their neighborhoods. My neighborhood is on the outskirts of Portland. So I I felt a little disconnected, right, from what's going on downtown because I'm like, that feels like another world to me. Um and yet I think there does come a certain point when you're like, this still is my city. I need to be listening to the cries of people who are lamenting and who are mourning. And so it's been an interesting journey for me just trying to think how does my Christian faith and me being obsessed with my neighborhood like how am I needing to be called outside my comfort zone a little bit and say, even though it feels really separate, how are these Black Lives Matter protests? um, You know, how are they the cries of my city? And what am I doing to actually sit and listen to them? So I think that's been something I've been trying to do. But it is overwhelming, isn't it? Because I think probably there's stuff going on in almost every city at this point. So we probably all have the opportunity right now.
0: And we even started, I mean, before we hit record, we were talking about that. Like, there is a there is an exhaustion uh, for you in talking about this. For me, when people are like, you know, I see these tweets, but what about Chicago? And and I don't, you know, I, people ask me where I'm from, and I say, it's Chicago because I, that's what you say. Mm-hmm. And then they're like, if they're from here, they're like, no, really, where you're from? Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, we're in the south suburbs, so we're not really in the city. So I kind of mm-hmm, feel that mm-hmm. same disconnectedness. I. What I notice in um, in you and what you talk about in your book, but also I, it, the connection for me is with the monastic communities that took this vow of stability and committed to a place, mm-hmm. is that when we commit to a place, it deeply inspires us to make choices if you're not committed to a place your your choices are so broad that you really don't have to think about them and and for me, choice is intimately linked to wisdom. And so the listeners of the podcast know that this is coming, but I was going to ask you this too, given your commitment to place, if you were going to define that word wisdom, where, where do you start? Where's the beginning point for you?
1: Well, I think that question just totally knocks me on my butt because it's really different than Questions I've been asking myself in the urgency of this moment. And so I'm really grateful to you for asking that. And you brought up the new monastic movement, you know, Jonathan Wilson Hart book, The Wisdom of Stability, has been really important to me. And as you were talking and just thinking about that image of a tree with roots that are just as strong as the branches, right? That's on the cover of that book, I believe. And, and so I'm having this image of myself, you know, I'm a middle aged white evangelical American lady who growing up, I really was encouraged and believed that I knew everything there was to know about God. And I should go tell other people about that, like at age 19. Um, and that's not wisdom. So I don't know how to define wisdom, but I know how to define hubris and I know how to define, uh, (laughs)
0: So we know what it's not. We know
1: what it's not. I know what it's not. And so for me, when I think about wisdom, I think about myself stretching out my hands and asking for people to to help me. Honestly, help me grow in wisdom. And I, I think about being rooted in my neighborhood. I think about my neighbors who uh, so many of them come from collectivist cultures. I, I have lived and work, worked in mostly refugee communities in the United States for a while. And so... Um, the wisdom my neighbors have given to me, I just feel like I'm perpetually hungry for it. And I guess the other thing about wisdom is like, again, me coming from a place of hubris, I just need to be in a position of continually stretching my roots out and trying to seek out more wisdom, particularly from people that are really not like myself. Um, so I'm on a quest for wisdom. And I guess I know it when I... When I get it from my neighbors and I just see how it, it creates a stronger, longer lasting foundation. And and I guess I keep thinking about this in terms of Christianity. Um, But it's been hard because again, being raised in my tradition, which was really that, you know, Protestants have got everything about God figured out. We're at the very pinnacle of God's relation. Um, it's just been hard a hard unlearning to say that's not correct, and we need to learn to receive joyfully wisdom from other people, other religions and and all that it's It's really helped my life, but it's also put me at odds with uh my Christian culture, and that's been hard
0: it seems like every yes is a no, right everything that we embrace requires us to leave something behind um I love the idea of wisdom being relational. Like there is a, it's not just an idea. It's a, wisdom is always a person. Think about the Bible personifying wisdom as Mm -hmm. a, as a woman, but as Mm -hmm. a, as a person. Talk a little bit about your tradition that you grew up in and, and how much, and if, if any of this resonates from your theological or church background that you grew up in.
1: Yeah. So I was, My dad's a pastor. uh, So I was raised a pastor's kid. I was homeschooled most of my life um, due to a a fear of public schools, uh, you know, making people unchristian and all that stuff. And I went to uh, a Bible college here in Portland, Oregon to be a missionary and ended up meeting refugees here in, in our city and, uh, you know, I tried to convert them that went horrible. Um, and instead this sounds so cliche, but it's true. Uh, they invited me into a life of continual conversion to continually seek to ask myself, where is God actually at work in the world? Am I partnering with that work or am I, uh, you know, missing out on it completely? And so I think for me, I just love that again, wisdom being personified as a woman, Um, especially since, you know, the scriptures were written in a patriarchal framework, right? Where women were not really obviously respected or or held up as, uh, people to listen to. Well, that's been my experience too, is, is, um, it's been mostly, you know, women who've experienced forced migration, women who've experienced extreme poverty, women who have, um, you know, they just like myself come from patriarchal, um, backgrounds, Many of my friends actually came from non-literate backgrounds, so they actually never went to school and they never learned how to read or write. And the wisdom they have imparted to me, it's incredible. And teaching me what it means to actually be generous, what it actually means to live with your neighbor in mind instead of just yourself, Uh, what it means to uh, be resilient in the face of um, just earth-shattering tragedy and uh, how to move forward when your life uh, basically has ended. And so I've even been thinking about, you know, how all of us are experiencing COVID-19 and just the ripple effects of this are going to last obviously a really long time. And, And so as we're seeking out how to move forward, I'm like, I hope everybody's prioritizing the voices of people who have experienced the end of the world. I hope we are prioritizing the voices of those who've already um, experienced extreme tragedy and have survived and are um, seeking ways to thrive and to help other people thrive. So that's just been on my my mind. I'm, I'm so happy I live in my neighborhood that I do where most people are low income. There's a lot of immigrant refugees. I'm like, wow, we're a neighborhood of survivors. Like this is going to be a really great place to be for the next few years.
0: Yeah. As you were talking about that, I was I was thinking about and everybody who listens to this podcast knows that you know I'll I'll take every once in a while and nerd out a bit, but I was thinking about your your comment about constant conversion. And it it reminded me of the the word teshuv in the Hebrew, which we turn into which becomes repent in the in the New Testament. And and it comes back to the first encounter I ever had with seeing something that you had done was um I was in line uh to get an autograph at Festival of Faith and Writing. And uh at the bookstore they had your your first book, Assimilator Go Home, on uh stand. And I I, I leafed through it a bit and I was like, there's there's something strong and prophetic here. And then as I was reading your recent book, The Myth of the American Dream, the same thing, that prophetic. And prophets always had that role of calling people to, to shove to repent, to turn, to convert. Um, and we in evangelical circles have gotten conversion down to like a one-time thing. Um, but it's really not. Talk a little bit about how you see that constant conversion in the present. Um, in this present moment.
1: Yeah, I think looking at what it means to be someone who wants to follow God while living in Pharaoh's land, you know, is how I'm trying to reframe my own place and my own levels of power, like the hallmarks of American culture and, and trying to sort of look at the biblical framework. I'm like, wow, America's a lot more like uh, Babylon or uh, Egypt than we are um this scrappy Israel, right? Which is how I was raised to read the scriptures scriptures as I would identify Israel, God's chosen and and all that. Um, So instead trying to look at the hallmarks of what it means to live in Pharaoh's world and have your entire imagination shaped by that, and then invite God to come in and give us a better imagination, one that encompasses everyone. I mean, that's the thing. I, I think. The myth of the american dream is really a book of grief and maybe that's where i am like i i think prophets are people who are super sad (laughs) like they're super sad and they have this compulsion to be honest about naming the world as it actually is because one hallmark of living in pharaoh's world is uh pharaoh has to say that everything's going great um, at all times, right? To keep up the illusion that all your hard work and all this sacrifice and all this death and all this exploitation, it's all worth it, right? For this, this, this system that is going to exist forever. Uh, and so for me, just the myth of the American dream is kind of me saying to my white evangelical upbringing and the culture that surrounded it and then the larger American culture just saying, your dream for the world is, was not big enough. You didn't give me a framework for the common good. You didn't give me a framework to actually radically alter my life to ensure my neighbors are flourishing. And yet when you read the scriptures, like that's what it's all about. That is literally what it's all about. And here I thought I was a little fundamentalist taking it all literally. Um, but I, I didn't, you know? And so I think for me, a life of repentance is like, can I try and take some of this literally, can I try? Like, if we take the Sermon on the Mount, what would happen if we all just tried to read that every day and be like, Oh my gosh, could I just like try and live into this for like one second? Like, that's a, that's gonna be a life of continual repentance for someone like me. For other people, they could be like, I'm already living that out, man. And uh, you, you know, so I, I don't want to say that's gonna be the same for everybody, but coming from my background, my privilege, in my you know, social, political location. I'm going to have to do some big changes to actually be in some of those places that Jesus said we're going to be blessed.
0: Yeah. As you, in writing The Myth of the American Dream, you you come to address four major pieces of what it means to be an American. Affluence, autonomy, safety, and power. As you started writing about this, what did you what, what did you learn about sort of the alchemy about of how these things have wrapped themselves into our our culture so much that it, we don't see the forest because of the trees anymore? And what did you learn about how those things are intertwined into everything that we do?
1: Yeah, I think it's an interesting um experiment for me to just consider how important it is to try and interrogate myths, especially if you grow up and you just think, well, I'm not influenced by culture. You know, I'm just a Christian. Um, You know, I don't have a culture. That's, that's like something that white people in particular in the United States can say sometimes. And uh, we just have the normal, Almost like we just have the normal culture.
0: Yeah. I don't have a culture. I have the culture.
1: Well, that's what we're really saying, aren't we? And so, um, So when, you're, when you start to understand like, okay, I'm a part of the culture, I'm a part of the dominant culture, I'm a part of uh, Pharaoh's culture, right? Um, then we have to start to say, oh man, I, I wonder how strong this is in my own life. And, and I'm not really interested in... Um, pointing fingers at people, and I, and I really do want to make it clear that I'm interrogating these values in my own life, and I'm continually shocked at how strong they are. And that's why this perpetual repentance thing is real, because I, I think in the book, this, this story that keeps coming back to me is um, one that has to do with our choices about like where we send our kids to school. And this is like a really big, unspoken issue that many people, we can't really talk about. Um, And so for me, I grew up homeschooled, but I knew that I wanted to send my own kids to our local neighborhood school because we lived in apartments with people. We were friends with all those kids. Like, I'm all about my neighbors. I'm going to do it. And then right before my daughter, you know, we're thinking about signing her up for school. I went online, Googled the school and saw the school rating, you know, on the rating site. And it was like a big glaring red one, you know, which means it was failing, had terrible test scores, all this stuff, and my heart just like sank, and I was just immediately overwhelmed with these thoughts of like I could never send my kid to school there. She's so amazing, and so smart. I can't do this to her. Like, what can I do? Should I homeschool? Should I pay for a private school? And I just thought, oh my gosh, I here I thought i had been preparing my whole life to love my neighbor, and then the second this counter narrative of like, oh no, this is bad. And you have a responsibility to do everything in your power to get what's best for your kid. It was so, so powerful. I ended up going to the school meeting with the principal and kind of touring the place and seeing inside of it. And you know, it just seemed like a normal school. (laughs) it's very diverse and very low income, which affects the test scores, right? Um, And actually, it was like the second lowest rated school in all of Oregon, not just Portland, but like all of Oregon. That's how low the test scores were. Um, And, you know, I told the principal like, okay, well, I think we're going to send our daughter here. Like, what can I do to help? Like, how can we help this school? And he was just sort of like, well, we're doing fine. Uh, You know, we have a lot of really awesome families. This is a really awesome community. If you want to join us, great. If not, you know, that's fine. And it really put me in my place, you know, just like that. Cause I'm like, fine. If I'm going to sacrifice and like send my kid to school here, like, well, then how can I help? How can I make it better? And he was like, we have all awesome families here. Like if you want to come, (laughs) come. And that just showed me how strong that dominant culture narrative was in my own heart. And that basically, that for me, that was mostly about autonomy and my right to choose what's best for me and mine. But it's also tied to wanting to keep my child safe. It's tied to wanting my kid to get the best resources. And so resource hoarding when it comes to affluence and all that stuff. So it's all really tied together and it's going to take some work to dig into how deep these really go. Yeah.
0: And we are fighting with I think starting with the conversation about wisdom was helpful because we're, we're fighting with here uh, the gut reaction of a of a person from a dominant culture is to say, but those things aren't bad. And I think what we're fighting with is not the difference between good and bad. We're fighting between the difference between good and wise. Like it's good for you, but it's not wise because of what it does to others. Which is astounding considering, you know, the Christian faith is rooted in love of God, self, and neighbor. Like, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Whatever you want for yourself, you should want for them. So, to, to want to hoard resources isn't loving yourself, clearly, but it doesn't have that reciprocal power of loving your neighbor well. So, how do you approach those questions, which are the... Well, that isn't bad. I mean, is it wrong that I want the best for my kids? Is it wrong that I want, you know, to be safe? How how do you approach those things? Uh, and and you do this in the book, so I mean, people should read this. But I would love to hear how you how you approach those things in a, on a very practical level, on how you do it, you personally, your family, your neighborhood.
1: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. the The thing is, these aren't inherently evil desires. They're actually just human desires, right? And and so since we are made in the image of God, it's like, yeah, th- these are just a part of the human experience. And so uh, the thesis really for the myth of the American dream is that the problem comes is when people of privilege or people who already have disproportionate amounts of power in a society pursue those values for them in a, in a world that's already unequal, right? Uh, that's when the common good gets left behind. And that's when those who are already the most marginalized are going to continue to suffer more. So I, I am, in, you know, super duper Christian. So I just go back to the Old Testament. And I feel like you now and you're, I.
0: You're really super Christian if you go back to the Old Testament. I mean, I, know, that's I should like even graduate, should... <laughs> graduate level Jesus right there.
1: I mean, I do love hanging out in the Gospels, but it's been fascinating to just like splash around in the hebrew scriptures and what they have to say about wealth right for instance so i would love to have some conversations with you about wisdom in particular when it comes to wealth or money and so you know especially in parts of the hebrew scriptures you know money wasn't really a thing but there's wealth and there's possessions and all that stuff um and the and the, the bible in its entirety has so much to say about money so anything you want to believe about money you can find a scripture verse uh, to support that belief right and you can hold up one or two verses and especially in the wisdom literature uh, of the Hebrew scriptures I, I've noticed that a lot of Christian like financial gurus will find a verse or two and, and be really intense about like well the Bible says like you know only the fool like doesn't store up his money and you know uh, but the thing is when you look at it in its entirety like the two most common things said about money or wealth or possessions in the Bible. The first is that wealth is a blessing from God, right? So that's, that's the reality that's in there. And we can't negate that. Uh, I grew up hearing that a lot. So I've heard that one. Uh, The second most common thing it says is that um, wealth and possessions make us forget about our neighbors and cause us to forget to take care of them. And that's the one I didn't grow up hearing. And so again, I'm interested in looking at what the scriptures say. I'm then I'm interested in saying, so why was that one not talked about? That's how we get to what the myths are. That's how we get to say, why why is only one of those things held up as wisdom when it comes to financial planning for Christians? Why aren't these gurus also telling us the second thing, which is that the more you have wealth, the more you hoard wealth, the easier it is to forget about your responsibility to take care of what uh, Randy Woodley, this amazing indigenous theologian, calls the triad of the vulnerable in the Hebrew scriptures, which was the foreigner, the orphan, and the widow. And those are three groups of people that in these economies were not prioritized in any way, shape, or form. And therefore, as people who followed Yahweh, it was their responsibility to prioritize the most economically vulnerable people. So, you know, I went to Bible college, I remember reading like all the books of the prophets and just all we talked about was idolatry so the sign that the people of israel were not following god is they were bowing down to idols well if you go back and reread many of those passages yes it does say that they were bowing down to like silver and gold idols all this stuff but most of the time it also says and you've also forgotten the poor you've forgotten to take care of the orphan the widow and the foreigner and so that's that's basically one of the first signs that you can tell that you're not actually following God anymore is when you forget to take care of those people and i'm like wow that is something again was not emphasized in in any of my bible college classes and i and i want to know why
0: tend to do a one to one as well when we see the word wealth in the bible we tend to think of it in terms of western post industrial rationalist enlightenment wealth which people in the old testament couldn't have Mm-mm. dreamed of the kind of resources because it was all land based and so now with industry and i mean technology there's there are things there's been an evolution and so to read wealth in our context into wealth of the old testament just I hate to be ironic, but it's unwise. (laughs) And that's where, that's where the gap in wisdom comes is the first step of wisdom is knowing this is not that. Um,
1: Yeah. To think that, that several verses from Proverbs baptize, you know, capitalism. It's just, that's not true. It's so much more complex than that.
0: Yeah and not and i i've heard that too from the financial gurus and I, there's so much good work that people have done to teach people money management and things like that but the, the majority of the scripture comes from psalms or proverbs yes and when you get into the gospels you've got you know you have a financial plan in which you you know pay off your house and all that and then you get jesus in the gospels going yeah i don't even have a house um or S- you guys shouldn't take anything with you don't take a bag or You know, if you got some sandals, that's cool. Maybe a sword. Who knows? But so that that dichotomy, you know, we sort of stop at Malachi and, and, you know, well, we'll, the rest of that stuff is about going to heaven when you die. And um, it's that significant issue of we all have to live here between now and then. Mm And, and what I love about the myth of the American dream is you, you bring on these four areas and there are four specific sections of the book, but all of them are feeding off of each mm-hmm. other. Um, the reason each exists is because the others exist. That brings up a word that we've been talking about a lot lately, especially in relationship to racism, which is systematic mm-hmm. or systemic and as I'm listening to you talk, I'm hearing Walter Brueggemann a lot. Oh yes! Oh my gosh! <laughs> so the whole Pharaoh, uh-huh. you know, the Pharaoh and the Empire idea, and um, the prophetic imagination is one of my all-time favorite books. How does a person? How does a person living in a neighborhood in the outskirts of Portland or on the edges of the south suburbs of Chicago? Take on what feels like this multi headed hydra that is the systemic idea of what it means to not only be a, a person of faith, but a person of faith living in the midst of this, this thing that we've all been talking about. Ibram Kendi, who talked about racism, he said, We've been, it's been poured on our heads from birth. Mm-hmm. What's our steps? How do we enter into that in a way that we can be redemptive and faithful when it's something that's so? endemic to us we don't even know it's there
1: yeah i think you already touched on it honestly because for me in the myth of the american dream it was really important to start with uh like looking the first section looking at affluence and and looking at it more from a systematic perspective because you know sociologically white evangelicals like myself are really unprepared to engage with systematic realities because of our hyper individualism. And so um, I don't know if you've read divided by faith, but it's this amazing book talking about the racial divided in American evangelical churches. And there, yeah, these sociologists, they literally say white evangelicals do not have a framework to involve in systematic evil. And that has really shown up with how we uh, talk about racism, but I would say also about um, economics. And so that's why, I was I was wanting to start the book with that sort of discussion about economics. Let's not talk about oh my gosh that person's probably poor because they bought a frappuccino, you know. Um, no, let's actually talk about in what city in America can someone work full time at a minimum wage job and pay their rent for a one bedroom apartment? You can look up these figures. It's hardly anywhere. Certainly not in Portland. So there's so people are not making a livable wage. People are not Making enough money to pay for housing, you, you know, there's all these things that are more systematic, and I and I see like the God of the Scriptures being involved in those issues, right? So I, I think you're right, just by acknowledging how ill prepared some of us are to take these conversations on the macro level. I will say one thing, one good thing, right, about this time when we are isolated through COVID-19, as we see. All these protests against police brutality against black lives happening um i wonder if a lot of us are finally being forced to see it as a systematic issue i don't know what's your sense I, that's what i think maybe i'm being a little hopeful like now it's really in our faces that we can't ignore anymore that's the sense i'm getting yeah
0: yeah i've, I've felt since this COVID started And I'd love to hear your feedback on this. I think the best way to find out what a person's idol is, is to move it. Um, So when you shift it out of their focus, the thing that a person focuses on most. And the other way to do it is to expose it. And I think you're right. I think this moment has exposed us to a lot of things. Um, I mean, in my own life, how much I depend on travel for my happiness. Mm. And how, and we had, uh, so I don't want to go into all Casey stuff, but hey, here we are. You asked the question. Um, we had three trips planned for this year that got canceled because of COVID. And and this is not a like, woe is me kind of thing, but it was interesting to see my visceral gut reaction to not being able to go on these trips. And they are like first world problems. I can't, we were planning on going to Paris. We were going to not Kentucky, but. France. Um, We were planning on going to Grand Cayman for our anniversary, and we were headed to Wisconsin with family this uh, July. And those trips got canceled. And I was just sitting in the midst of that and just reflecting on how deeply travel affects my level of happiness. This thing that is only accessible (laughs) to so few people because we were flying and not everybody can afford airlines. So, So the wealth gap and then it's too easy. Like the easy thing to do would be to stop there and then go, well, that's just because we have jobs that provide that. No, as you point out, like there's this generational wealth gap. And people in the 1930s through the 60s, specifically black Americans whose, whose grandparents and great-grandparents were denied home loans can't buy a house if you can't buy a house you can't either pass it down or sell it and so I realize how much I'm a recipient of that and I think I think this time has opened that door to go wow it's not a one-to-one correlation but the fact that I have the privilege of travel has something to do with this system in which I have advantages that other people don't and it's not just because I happen to be born in the right place at the right time it's it's engineered that Mm -hmm. way not only that, but as people of faith, I think, I think we're being exposed. This is an unformed idea. I think we're also being exposed to how deeply original sin has blinded us. The concept of original sin has kept us from being able to think clearly about systemic evil because it provides a cloak that we can wear in these conversations. But if we do like the Celts and the Franciscans and start with original blessing, that changes things Mm. and it's no longer about, well, you know, that's just depravity for you. Like, no, yes, there's some depravity in it, but that we, we shouldn't settle for that much less. I don't think Jesus settled for less. So those are some rough unformed thoughts on that, but I don't know what your, what your take is on some of those things.
1: It's funny. I don't even know. I don't even know what I think about original sin, except to be like, yeah, I see it in myself. It makes sense. (laughs) I am super selfish and want only what's best for me and mine, and don't know how to love my neighbor. Like, so for me, I'm like, if you believe in original sin, why wouldn't you just be like, yes, very sinful, privileged people from the beginning set up the constitution to only prioritize and give rights to one type of person, which is a white landowning male, and they said that was God's will. Wow, that's terrible, you know. So for me, maybe I'm taking it in the wrong direction, but I'm like, original sin to me is connected to systemic evil, but, you know.
0: I feel, like that, I feel like that's the way it should go, but I feel like more often than not, where it goes is original sin is a thing. Trust Jesus, go to heaven when you die. See, if original blessing is our starting point, I think we have a shot at transformation because we have it. There's The only reason the original sin makes sense is because there's an intended good that has been shifted. Yeah. So if you don't, I know, I know so many theologians who start with Genesis three, and that's the starting point of, you know, why Jesus was necessary and what, you know, what the kingdom of God is all about. But if you, if you start with Genesis one, and there is this inherent, and the Celt, the Celtic tradition is so big on this, there's this inherent goodness, mm. and sin has just covered it. Then all we're really asking people to do is to recover that goodness. It's so much more complicated to think we start with sin, and it has completely marred us without question, without exception. Because then, all, really, heaven when you die is about the best we can do. Because if we're all always sinners forever and ever, but if we can actually recover some of those pieces of goodness, and, and I think that's what Jesus was doing. I think he was inviting people to rediscover that, that idea that God actually believes you're capable of more than you think you are.
1: Yeah, it's, I mean, it's just been a really devastating time for me to see uh, a lot of people from my background and my faith community, white evangelical Christians, really uh, being in the news for some really not great things. I think right now, like being at the forefront of saying, I shouldn't have to wear a mask. Um, I have my individual rights or, you know, we're going to Defy the governor's orders, and we're going to meet together and sing worship songs at the top of our lungs, and y- you know, all this stuff. And it just breaks my heart because you're singing songs to Jesus, right? Um, how is this good news for my neighbors who are desperately worried about paying their rent, terrified of getting COVID 19, who wish that we had an immigration system that would allow them to someday see their family members again. You know, like how is you all getting together and singing good news? And I think you're exactly right. I think the thing that keeps me going as a Christian is is going back to Genesis one and saying, oh my gosh, this God is so creative. This God is so full of love. This God is in relationship with you know, the members of the Trinity, with humans, with the earth. Even as I'm saying those words, I can feel myself just taking a deep breath. The God I serve is a God of love and creativity. And we need both of those things to move forward at this point because things are going to get tough. If we think it's tough right now, like things are going to get very tough for my neighbors, even more tough than they've already been. You know, and so for me, looking at Christians sort of like squawking about their individual rights, it's really depressing. I just go back to, who did Jesus tell me God was? Can I live into that? I need that creativity and I need that love to keep going.
0: Yeah. And that's, you asked that question in the book, you, you said, what would good news look, what would good news for my lower income neighbors feel like for me? Mm. That. That's such a powerful—I mean, I I really value curiosity and formation, and I think too often we search for answers to make us who we are, and and Jesus seemed to be asking more questions and inviting us to actually find our way. And that question, what would good news look like? What would good news for my lower-income neighbors feel like for me? That is the question that we're asking right now Mm -hmm. of this, what about my rights? And um there just seems to be a a battle right now between what is right and what is wise.
1: Yeah and I think we do need to also look back at what actually happened to Jesus and what self-sacrificial love can look like. You know I would encourage people listening to this to to really sit with that question of what what feels like bad news to, you know, the most marginalized people in my community, in my circles, in my spaces, and what would good news look like for them? You know, for me, the answer is right at the tip of my tongue. It's like affordable housing, right? Mm, That's, that would be really good news to my neighbors. (laughs) Is that something that Christians could get involved in? Yes, yes, we can. Um, It's going to take some work, but there's some real avenues to actually be a part of the good news. That might mean you know, having affordable housing projects in your neighborhood. That doesn't feel like bad news to me, but I know for some people yeah. that might. Um, you, you know, these kinds of things, it might feel hard in the beginning, but the wisdom we will get, right, from our neighbors and from inviting the good news to change us, I think it'll bring wisdom, but also brings joy. Like, I wouldn't do this stuff if I didn't actually really, really enjoy my neighborhood, and our school, and our life. And are there problems? Yes. (laughs) And they're actually kind of closer to the service, which makes it easier to kind of uh, go for it, you know, like to live in it. Um, They're not hidden, these inequalities. Um, But there's just so much joy in entering into this mutual longing for flourishing. Um, And that's something that so many activists and so many people who have been oppressed have said, that they are not interested in charity. You know, the good news is not charity. The good news looks like the mutual flourishing of all. That's what my pastor always talks about. His, his definition of the kingdom of God and shalom is, you know, seeking the mutual flourishing of all. And that's just that's what I want my life to look like.
0: Yeah. Was there one of the four aspects of the, of the myth of the American dream that was more difficult for you to write into?
1: Yeah, I think the safety section in particular is me, what I chose to focus on in that section was how we talk about being safe as a country. And so kind of talking about nationalism and and views of immigration and, and the rhetoric about not being safe because of, you know, undocumented immigrants or whatever, but it it was really hard to write for me personally, because of my experience working with refugees for the past 15 years. And as I was writing that book, you know, uh, the Republican administration was continually putting out policies that ended up decimating the U.S. refugee resettlement program. So this historic program that we've had since the 1950s, right, is now over. I mean, I've taught non-literate, recently arrived refugee women for the past decade, and there's nobody coming for the past two years. There's just nobody coming. And even if, by some miracle, the Trump administration said, "Okay, now we'll let more refugees in," well, we don't have people to receive them. We don't have the funds to support them anymore. It's all been devastated. Even globally, these refugee camps, like we, they're not getting funded. Like, it, it will take at least a decade to rebuild. This really historic human rights program to be anywhere close to where it was in the past few years. And like, I I don't even know how to express how radically my life has been changed for the worse. And it happened so quick. And uh, the damage will not be undone quickly. And thinking about all the people as we are living through this time of a global refugee crisis that is absolutely unprecedented, and seeing how vocal Christians have been to shut out these people who most need safety and shelter, it it was really hard to write. And I think what's hardest still is how little people have engaged with that part of the book. Um, and that's not really on people's minds. And so, um, I'm sorry, maybe that's not the kind of answer you've been wanting, but I feel like I just want to talk about that all the time. And people are sort of like, that's interesting. (laughs) And when to me, it feels like my world has ended.
0: Yeah. Well, it it is back to even the beginning. I mean, the women that you have taught become your neighbors in a way that's much more intimate and detailed and specific. And when you commit to a place and you commit to a people, then you commit to those stories. And after you've seen the stories, what we see as a headline for you as a human being, Mm -hmm. and that's the gap that I think most people, when you're talking, you said, they're like, huh, that's interesting. That's the gap they're addressing is Mm -hmm. I don't, if you don't know someone, I think it's Shane Claiborne that said, it's not that we don't like the poor or don't care about the poor, it's that we don't know the poor Mm -hmm. and that the poor could be, that can be problematic. But for it's, you know, for most people, I think they don't know the plight of refugees. I was having a conversation with someone and this is about legal immigration and we were talking about the process, and I said, "Well, you know, it's a between five and sometimes twenty-year process for someone to go through that." And they just looked at me with their mouth open and said, "Are you kidding?" And I said, "No, no. I mean, some sometimes it's the the north end of twenty, fifteen to twenty years. You have a child; they're grown and voting before you even have a chance to live with them if they were born in the, this country. So uh, that is exactly the answer I was hoping for because." What I can hear in it is where your heart is breaking. Because mm-hmm. that's what prophets are. They're people who are sad, <laughs> right? <laughs> and they see something that's worth being sad about. With all that in mind, um, we, any of us who have written something want it to have a, have a hope for a book. What's your hope? What's your hope for this book? What do you want to see happen as a result of people reading it?
1: It's very interesting to publish a book called *The Myth of the American Dream* during a global pandemic.
0: <laughs> well, now you—we talked about this before. Like, there needs to probably be like a little pamphlet addendum too oh, to address things. Like, I should
1: like, write a pamphlet. I'm a pamphleteer at heart. I COVID, know it. Covid.
0: Um, Covid. Yeah, riots, it's like an addendum. year. <laughs> make just a 2020 election version right i would
1: definitely do something about face masks and conspiracy theories that's what i would add uh at this point um yeah i mean at this point my my dream (laughs) my hope is that people will just look at the title and be like yeah it's totally a myth and then they would go read other people who've experienced it more than me (laughs) Is that terrible to say? I, my
0: hope is my book gets people to buy other books. Yes. that would be great.
1: I mean, honestly, I, I wrote the book mostly for my community, um, white evangelicals, and so if that's able to spark conversations, I think that's great. But right now is just this incredible time of having access to social media, where we can follow diverse voices, we can follow people who've been saying this stuff for forever and uh, i really just want to point people to the places where i'm getting wisdom right and um, where i'm finding it and as far as moving forward i think a lot of my people are very scared of losing power and um the antidote to that is uh joyfully moving forward knowing we will lose it and we get to learn from followers of Christ globally and locally who have never had cultural or economic or even you know, racial power in our society. And we joyfully get to come under their leadership and move into this next phase of what God's doing in the United States. Um, I hope the fear turns to joy. I- I'm not convinced that's what's going to happen, um, but that's, that's where I'm looking into the future. We get to be a tiny part of God's story in um in the world.
0: Well, thank you for your fierceness and your willingness to step into territory that a lot think a lot of people would look at and go, Ooh, I don't know that you want to go there. Uh but also for letting your heart break for where you live and for being willing to share that with a bunch of people. Uh, through the gift of writing. Uh, it's a voice that we need to hear. So thank you for being that voice.
1: Thank you. I feel encouraged just even having the chance to think about wisdom. So thank you. Thank you for that. That feels like a grounding conversation for me today.
0: My guess is if you're an American, this conversation was very challenging. If you're a follower of Jesus in American, this conversation was different, but also very challenging. But what I loved about Danielle was her honesty and her understanding and her self-understanding that this is something we're all in the process of doing. That these reflections that she offers in her book, The Myth of the American Dream, are not things that she has fully worked out, but the things that she discovers every day in her own life. And so I hope that you will take it as that, not as a condemnation, but as an invitation from Danielle as a writer, but also from the Spirit of God who is inviting us to be constantly converting, repenting, renewing the creation and the people with whom we live, and renewing ourselves in the light of God's Spirit and what he's doing within us. D.L. Mayfield, Uh, Danielle writes under the name D.L. Mayfield, Uh, she's a writer and an activist. She spent over a decade working with refugee communities in the U.S. Her work has been published in McSweeney's, The Washington Post, uh, Christianity Today, The Christian Century, Sojourners, Vox, and also in the Englewood Review of Books, where our friend Chris Smith is. She's also the author of a book called Assimilate or Go Home, Notes from a Failed Missionary on Rediscovering Faith. She lives in Portland, Oregon with her husband and their two children. I hope you've enjoyed this uh, conversation. If you have, uh, please share this with people you think might want to uh, hear it. Uh, Definitely go and get a copy of D.L.'s new book, The Myth of the American Dream, Reflections on Affluence, Autonomy, Safety, and Power. Um, If you're listening on Spotify or iTunes, would you please rate and review the podcast? That would be fantastic. If you're streaming via my website, thank you for doing that. Uh, As always, I would love to hear anything that you feel like could be better about the show. If there's a guest you would suggest, uh, if there's something that I do that just messes with you that's weird or annoying, I would love to hear that as well. But my hope and my prayer is that you might begin to interrogate yourself with gentleness and with grace and begin to see in you where the myth of the American dream is keeping you from being the person that loves their neighbor as themselves and loves God with everything that they have. And may we find the next good step into our own constant conversion. Until next time, be well, live wisely, peace friends.